We're going to look at Romans 7 tonight, which means we didn't get to look at all of Romans 6, and that really bums me out because it's one of my favorite chapters. But to suffice to say, Romans 6, I, I did get into it a little bit last week, enough for you maybe to get a sense of what it's about. It's really about how understanding that Christ has set us free from the dominion or the slavery of sin thus engages us and energizes us and sets us free to fight against sin and to struggle against sin. Now, in the course of talking about that, the Apostle Paul, at one point in verse 14 of chapter 6, which I did actually put on your little outline uh, tonight on your scripture passage so we could make sure we notice this, he says something that has often confused people. He says, For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. And there's a long history of people being confused about that. And of Christians, you hear Christians sometimes when they do things they shouldn't, and people say, man, you really shouldn't have done that. You acted like a jerk in that situation. Say, well, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. Therefore, you have to forgive me. Don't you, isn't like sort of um, empty forgiveness really so annoying? Wendy and I went and saw um, Sarah McLaughlin last night which was really great um, in one level. But then one of the things she did that was interesting is she took questions from the audience. You could write out questions and she would answer some of them. And somebody asked the question, who's Adia? Who is Adia? Yeah, who is that? What is that song about? And um, she said Adia was her best friend who she slept with her best friend's boyfriend. They'd been broken up for a year, but she slept with him, married him, had two kids with him. And uh, it was really interesting. And it was a song basically about how you can be innocent again, but when you listen to the song and it's like, ugh, I don't like that song anymore. Because it's basically telling her friend, yeah, I know I slept with your boyfriend, but you know, we're all innocent, you know, just because you want to be. And it just leaves you so empty, right? And I, I think sometimes this, this verse gets misused that way. Oh, I'm under, I'm under grace. I'm not under law. Therefore, I don't have to be responsible in how I live, and it doesn't matter how I live, and don't you try and tell me how to live, and don't you quote Bible verses at me about how to live. That's a real misunderstanding of what Paul means by that. And as we get into this passage tonight, we're going to understand that what he's talking about is not that the law has no more relevance for you. It's very important as a Christian you understand how you relate to the Bible, and particularly to what the Bible says about how you're supposed to live. And that's what this passage in Romans chapter 7 is about. The law still has uh, a very important role to play. But if you get confused about the role that the law is to play, you really mix up Christianity and turn it into something very different from what it actually is. So let me pray, and uh, then we'll dig into this, this passage and read it and talk about it. Lord, we do pray that you would help us tonight, that you'd help us to understand your word not just in our heads, but in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 7, verse uh, 1, we'll start. The Apostle Paul says this, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. 
So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in, a, in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. And that was clear as mud, wasn't it? It's a lot of stuff and a lot of concepts to cover, uh, and I can't get into every single verse, but I'm going to try and give you a sense of what this passage is saying and why it matters. Now, he starts out here um, with this idea that we're dead to the law, and thus we're no longer married to it. And I don't want us to get caught up into, you know, first century marriage laws and the marriage laws of the Old Testament and divorce and whether we agree with all that. That's not the point. Paul's using this as an analogy, and at that point, it, we're going to look at it. The, the idea is, if you're married and your husband dies, 
you're not married anymore. And your husband can't control you and how you live anymore. Oh, they may try through wills and through, you know, setting up trusts. And there's various things that people try to do. But basically, when your husband dies, you're no longer married. You're no longer controlled by that relationship because that relationship is gone. What Paul's saying and what he's been saying in chapter 5 and in chapter 6 is that there is some relationship that's controlling you. Either you're married to Adam or you're married to Christ. Now, what does that mean? What it means to be married to Adam is the same thing conceptually throughout this section of Paul's letter to the Romans. It's the same thing conceptually as it means to be under sin or to be a slave to sin. Those are all the same things. And how, how does it work? It works this way. There are really only two basic ways to try to be pleasing to God. There are only two ways to try to become pleasing and beautiful in God's sight. One is the way that was given to Adam. You see, Adam, before sin entered the world, did not have to trust in Jesus to relate to God. Adam was created, and Adam and Eve were created in a state of righteousness, in a relationship with God, and what they were told basically was, do this and you'll continue to live. Do this and live. When they broke that law, they showed that there was no way that that, that way of relating to God could work. Do this and live could no longer work once sin entered the world. Why? Because even if you did it, 99.999% of the time, if at some point you don't do the law just perfectly, you're guilty. As Paul says in one of his other letters, if you're trying to be justified by the law, which means if you're trying to get God to be pleased with you by what you do, by doing the right things and not doing the wrong things, if that's what you're trying to do, if that's what your life uh, and your spiritual relationship with God is based on, you are in slavery because you have to be perfect. If you're trying to get God to like you by what you do, you have to be perfect. And that's slavery. And there's no way that you can get God to like you by being perfect, because you can't be perfect. That's what it means to be married to Adam, is it means to be trying to get God to love you based on your living the right way. Sometimes older theologians will talk about this as the covenant of works, that the way that you relate to God is by doing the works that please him. Now, that's being married to Adam, but being married to Christ is a, is a whole different thing. Being married to Christ is first and foremost about resting in the work that he's done. Sometimes you hear a Christian say, well, I'm not, I'm not saved by works, I'm saved by grace. In actuality, Christians are saved by works, but not their works. They're saved by the works of Christ. As I've quoted several times, and I'll quote again that great hymn line from Horatius Bonar. Unfortunate name, but a great hymn writer. Horatius Bonar said, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. To be a Christian means somebody who says, rather than 
rather than try to get God to like me by what I do, I'm going to forsake all of my trying to get God to like me, and I'm going to put all of my trust in what Jesus did and ask God to count Jesus' life and death in the place of mine. That's what it means to, to be a Christian, is to ask God the Father to take Jesus' life and death and let it count for you. Okay? That's what it means. Now, here's what Paul is saying is, you who are Christians have been married to Christ. And, the, and what that means is, well, here's the basic point of the illustration, you can't be married to two people at once. You can't be married to two people at once. And every time you sort of live like you have two masters controlling you or uh, sort of two relationships that are controlling the way you live, you're living in spiritual adultery. That's actually a deep theme throughout the scriptures, this idea of idolatry as spiritual adultery. What it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, means that you're somebody who was married to Adam, but Christ died and you were united with him in his death, therefore you died, therefore the relationship that used to control you is gone because you've died. If you've died, you're no longer married to Adam. And then the, the analogy takes over and it, and it goes on and it says that really what it means to be a Christian is somebody whose husband has been put to death and then you who were this dirty, filthy widow were loved to life by Jesus, the bridegroom, and he marries himself to you, though you don't deserve it. And now everything is different. You have a new name. You have a new relationship that characterizes and controls the way you should live. Even your children are going to be different. I mean, even extends the, the analogy to that level, that you've been married to Christ so that you can have fruit, as in the fruit of the womb, except the fruit that you're going to have by being married to Jesus are good works. You're not married to Jesus just so you can say, hey, I'm married to Jesus. It's great. No, you're married to Jesus so that there would be spiritual children, good works produced. When you were married to Adam, there was all kinds of children produced. Little children spawn of Satan, right? Yeah, that's what, was, that's what was produced. Acts that lead to death. But now that you've been married to Jesus, that old relationship is dead. It's gone because you've died. And now you've been married. That's the imagery here. And that's that, that great verse in Isaiah that we read for the call to worship. Your maker is your husband. So much about Christianity um, is understood if you can hold both parts of that together. In so many ways, those two ideas don't fit together. Your maker is your husband. I mean, you, you're, you're, you're tempted to think of your maker as sort of the Lord, sovereign one over you because he made you. But then you think about your husband as one who loves you and cherishes you. And most people that are trying to figure out Christianity, and most Christians, I would say, Go, go towards one of those two, but they can't hold those two ideas together. They either think of God as, as sovereign and Lord, and I better cower before him and try to do the best I can to make him not get mad at me. Or they think, well, he loves me. Doesn't matter how I live, doesn't matter what I do, he just loves me. These ideas come together in Christianity. Your maker is your husband. There is a way to live. One of the great glories and great privileges of, of, of the Israelites and of, of Christians is that God doesn't leave us just sort of wandering around in the dark wondering what kind of life does he want us to live anyway. You, do you realize 
that in that there is an invitation to freedom. The, the, uh, James calls the law the perfect law of freedom. And people in our day and age, they just scratch their head and say, that doesn't make any sense at all. Laws can never be about freedom. Well, they can if your maker is your lawgiver. And if he gives you laws that fit with how he's made you to be. See, it's one thing, you know, if you're out fishing and you see um, a, a fish jump up out of, the, out of the river, up onto the bank and start shouting, yay, I'm free. That's our culture's idea of freedom. I want to be free from any constraints whether it fits my nature or not. And that kind of freedom leads to death. Free to be what God made you to be is what the Bible means by freedom. And it's found with this idea that your maker is the one who tells you how he made you to live. That's what the law is about. And he is your husband, the one who loves you. All these images kind of come together. So there's an old uh, guy who lived back in the 19th century. John Colquhoun is his name. And he has a great little, little place where he talks about this idea. I love this imagery. Listen to this. He says, the redeemed of the Lord, therefore, by fa- virtue of the fact that they've been married to Adam and now that, that re- relationship has ended through death and now they're married to Christ, he says, the redeemed of the Lord, therefore, should no more expect eternal life for their own works then a widow would hope for favors and comforts from a dead husband. They are no more exposed to the curses of the broken law than a widow is to the threats of a husband who's lying in the grave. So when the law comes to you and it comes to your conscience and says, you know, how in the world do you think God could love you? Look at the way you live. Look at all the things that you've done today that are not in accord with his law. How can you hope for God to love you? What you need to say is, hey, you can't threaten me. You can't threaten me. You can't control me anymore. I'm I'm dead. Jesus died, and I died with him. Therefore, the death that I deserve for not living up to the law has already been died. It's not still hanging over my head. Do you understand the difference between living like an accused murderer who's going to the gallows versus somebody whose execution has already happened and you've been raised to new life again? That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is not somebody who's sort of living their life knowing that their judgment day is still awaiting them and that, that one day they're going to be executed for all that they deserve. No, Christians are people whose execution has already happened. They've already died at the cross and they've been raised to new life. And they're married to Jesus, and that changes everything. Now, from that, Paul gets into this whole thing about the law. And and I think the the way his sort of logic is, is running here is he's saying, okay, you know, I said that the law, that you're no longer under law. Back in chapter six, and he's still kind of illustrating that with this marriage analogy. And then he kind of returns to this eye of the law. He he goes, wait a sec. Now, some of you might be thinking that no longer under law is good news because the law itself is bad. And Paul says, I want you to understand it's not that the law is bad. You need to understand the point of the law. And so he offers up himself as an illustration or an example of how the law works. And he says, first off, in verse 7, the law is not sinful. Certainly not. Actually, in the old King James, it says, God forbid. 
It's stronger. Certainly not. It's just too wimpy. The law is not sinful. Nevertheless, he says in verse 7, he goes on, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. And you might think, what? Really? Now, Paul was trained by the greatest rabbi of his day. What does he mean he wouldn't have known what sin was except for the law? Well, here's, here's what I think he's, he's, he's saying. He wouldn't have known what sin really is if it was not for the law. What does he mean by that? Well, he says that the law, the law took him beyond just a theoretical knowledge or confession that, yes, I'm a sinner, to an experiential sense that he describes as dying. Martin Luther said one time that a true theologian is made by living, dying, and being damned. What he meant was that there's an experience of seeing your sin as utterly sinful, as beyond anything that you could cover over, as beyond anything that you could explain away, and then having to face God and seeing him smile and say, as he's going to say in chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Have you been through that death, dying, and being damned? Paul says he wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law had said, do not covet. But he knew the Ten Commandments. That's one of the big ten. What does he mean he wouldn't have known what coveting was unless the law said, do not covet? I think what he's saying is, I wouldn't have really known in my heart, in an experiential way, how sinful I really was. And until I knew how sinful I really was, I could never understand grace, and I could never have my heart changed from hating God to loving God. Let me show you how this works. What he says here in verse 8 is sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting, for apart from law, sin is dead. He says in verse 9, when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. So the first thing he says is, God's commands, God's holy law, actually stir up sin in our hearts. He's saying that sin is opportunistic. And it takes even a good thing, like God's law, that he graciously gives his people so that they're not scratching their heads wondering, what is it that this God wants us to do? So you're not just wondering, what would Jesus do anyway in this situation? No, Jesus lived the law. That's how we know. He lived the law perfectly from the heart. And God has given us this law to know this is the kind of life that God wants us to live. The Ten Commandments, you understand, start out with a, with a preface. I hate when, they, when, when Christians want to post the Ten Commandments in courthouses, or there's people not far from my house that for a while had a sign in their lawn of the Ten Commandments without the introduction, which completely changes the point of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments starts out, I am the Lord who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Therefore, live this way. 
It's very important that you understand that the law, the Ten Commandments were not given to God's people to put them into bondage. They were given to them to keep them free, to say, look, you were made to live in a particular way. You were made to be a community where you don't, you don't want other people's stuff and you don't murder and you don't worship false gods. You were made to be a community where relationships are loving and pure and holy. And that's where you'll find real freedom. Okay? But even this good, beautiful, holy law, sin takes it and says, what? What? You said I can't do that? You said I can't do that? I'll show you. <laughs> Don't you know, I mean, y'all aren't old enough to have kids yet, I guess. Well, I don't know. You're old enough, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe some of you do have children. I don't even know about it. Um, but here's the thing. As soon as you get children, you see this. If you don't know it about yourself, you can see it in little children because they're not as good at hiding it as we are. As soon as you tell them they can't do something, they want to do it, even if they don't really want to do it. <laughs> Now, sometimes you can have fun and you can manipulate them and use this to, you know, get some sort of pleasure out of it, I guess. <laughs> it's, you know, having kids is hard, so you should get some joy out of it. <laughs> Manipulating them at times and, you know, I'm just kind of teasing, you know. But here's the thing. Augustine, St. Augustine put it this way, that the essence of sin is to want to be God ourselves, in his phrase, to imitate omnipotence. To have the freedom and the power to fashion a world the way I want it to operate. And it's in your heart. Sometimes you don't know how deep it's lurking in your heart until God's command says, no. There's a real world and it works this way. And if you break God's commands, they break you because they f this is what you were made for. I mean, you can say, I know God says I shouldn't sleep around, but I do anyway. It will come back to you in some way or another. Your heart wasn't made for that. And you can try to, you can try to say something different by the way you live, but the fact is you're bumping up against the basic fabric of reality when you live out of accord with God's law. And sin hates that. Sin hates that because sin bumps up against reality all the time. And when you bump up against reality is when you realize that, man, I'm more committed to my ways and my vision of the good life than I ever realized. Sin, Paul says, was basically dormant. It's basically lying there like it's dead until the commandment says don't covet and then sin springs to life and kills him because he realizes, oh my gosh, I thought I was a great, I thought I was a great guy and now I realize that my basic fabric of being is opposed to God and his ways. Whenever we come up against this reality, a major battle erupts. God rightfully claims his sovereignty, his right to define how life works, and we hate it. We go crazy. We get furious with him or anybody else that would say, you can't do that or you can't live that way. But what is it about coveting? Here's the thing about coveting. Coveting is the one of the Ten Commandments 
that has no real external aspect to it. it. You may be able to read the Ten Commandments and think that as long as I externally obey, I'm doing pretty good. Like you'll hear people say, well, I haven't killed anybody. I've never killed anybody. Okay. But when you get to coveting, you realize that God cares not just about what you do, but about why you do it, and about your heart, and about what you love. It's not just enough to do the right things. God says, what do you love? What, what drives you? And I claim sovereignty over that as well. And when Paul realized that, he realized that he was more committed to his own ways than he realized. And he realized that he was utterly sinful. You see what he says? Like, I, it, when, when sin, when the law said do not covet, it made sin come alive in me. It, it, it aroused my sin. It, it got me fighting against God and it sort of brought that, that seething anger that was buried beneath the surface. It came out into the open. And I saw it and it killed me. It killed me. I felt sin, Paul says, in a way I never had before. And it killed me. Because I saw that sin was sin. It wasn't just a, a, little, a little screw up. John Bunyan, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said one time that sin is the rape of God's justice the jeer of his patience. Do you understand? It's not just about breaking the rules. It's about rupturing a relationship. It's about saying to the one who made you to be his beloved, I don't care at all about you, God, and I don't care how you live. It's a rupturing of a relationship. And Paul says, until you see this, you'll never have a heart change. And again, thou shalt not covet helps you understand that the heart is at the heart of the issue. How can your heart be changed from hating to loving God? Not by being given a fresh chance to try again to do the right things, but only by seeing that when you could do nothing to get God on your side, he sent his son to live and die in your place. What the law can't do, guys, is it can't change your heart. The law can only show you how utterly bankrupt your heart is. And it's a good and holy law, but because of our sinful nature, it can never do what it wants to do, which is to make you love God. The law shows you the mercy of God, the love of God, but it can't change your heart. And then what's interesting here, verse 14, verse 14 is where people debate a lot. What in the world is Paul talking about here? And there's two basic schools of thought here. There are some who say, well, here Paul, even though he's talking about something that happened before he got converted, He's using present tense language to make it more vivid and more forceful. So there are some people that read this section about what I want to do, I don't do, and what I 
hate, that's what I do. And they would say, well, that's not, that's not a Christian. That's Paul thinking still about what it was like when covening made him die. And he's kind of going on and still talking about that. And so he's talking about himself as a pre-converted person. He's talking about himself before he understood grace and before grace changed his heart. That's one school of thought. I don't think that's right. And there's a couple reasons. One is there's nowhere in the Bible or in other Greek literature from this time period where present tense verbs are used about something that happened in the past for more vividness. It's just not a grammatical construction that we have any evidence could be used. Now, Paul could have invented that use here, but I think the burden of proof is on people who would, who would show that. The, the reason people don't, don't like this, they just are like, how can Paul say that he, that he doesn't want to do stuff? He seems like he's still a slave, doesn't he? I mean, what he's describing in verse 14 seems like slavery, but he's been talking of in chapter 6 and in the first part of chapter 7 that we're not slaves to sin anymore. But then he describes himself in verse 14 like, I'm still a slave. What I don't want to do, that's what I do. Don't you feel like slaves to sin all the time? If you don't feel like a slave to sin, it's probably because you've never really tried to fight against sin. If you just sort of kind of go on living like whatever happens, oh, well, well, that's what happened today, then maybe you won't feel like a sin. But if you ever try to fight against sin, if you ever try to really stop lusting or stop back-talking or gossiping, if you commit yourself for an entire week to only use your tongue to build up other people, then you'll find that you feel like a slave. Okay? So are you? I mean, the Bible says you're not a slave if you've been married to Christ. You're not a slave. But Paul describes. So people struggle with this. I think he's describing the contradiction that lives in the heart of true believers. And I think it's so important that you understand it this way because I think so many people feel like they should be past this experience that Paul's talking about here that when it happens to them and they feel this, they wonder and they feel like they can't be Christians. So what you think about this passage and the interpretation of this passage really will, it'll either make you feel like you're crazy or you're not like a Christian or you'll be like, oh, I get it. Here's what I think. You're no longer a slave to sin, but you've been set free to struggle and the struggle is intense. When I say you've been set free to struggle, I don't mean you've been set free to really live mostly purely holy lives, but every once in a while you kind of screw up. No, I mean you've been set free, and sometimes you do what you don't want to do. In the deepest part of you, he says, basically, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But it's not what I live so much of the time. It's difficult to explain this this inward contradiction. And he uses several different terms to describe it, but the heart of what he's saying is this. Sin is not my deepest desire, but it's powerfully at work in me. Even though I've been set free from being married to Adam, so much of the time, I wish that I could still live like I was married to Adam. And I don't like having to put all my hope in Jesus and his life and death, I would like to make sure that God likes me and I'd like to have a little more tangible, 
proof to offer to him about why he should love me. So I'm just going to sort of pad my resume a little bit with a few works of my own just to make sure. We're constantly doing that sort of thing. The way Tim Keller puts it, I think it's helpful. He says, the believer, according to this passage in Romans 7, is marked by two laws at work in his heart and two cries in his heart. There's two laws or principles. Look at verse 23. And part of the confusion of, of following Paul is the word law can mean several different things. When he says in verse 23, I see another law at work in me, he means I see another basic principle of life or tendency at work in me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but then I also have this other lowercase l law at work in me, the basic way that I tend to live, waging war against the law of my mind. There's an inner, deeper desire to love God and his ways, but yet there's this powerful battle going on with me. And then there's this cry in verse 24. Look at the two cries. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? He agonizes over the remaining sin in his heart. And we're going to see in chapter 8 the answer to this. Now, I'm going to say two applications in closing. You have to understand that this contradiction is normal. So many, so many ways Christians sometimes get confused and they think that you go from chapter 5 to chapter 6 to chapter 7 and then to chapter 8. As a wise pastor told me once, it makes all the difference to understand that chapter 7 and chapter 8 are parallel tracks. What do I mean by that? Chapter 7, I don't do what I want to do. What I don't want to do, that's what I do is going on at the same time, it's true of you, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that nothing will separate you from the love of God. Nothing in all creation, neither height nor depth. That's true about you even though you feel in your heart sometimes like you hate God. And I think this is so important. I think, guys, it's one of the reasons we sing these hymns is because I... I I just, my heart breaks over how many students I think have been lied to by the songs we sing. And they, they, they feel like I'm singing these songs about how I just love Jesus, but it's not true in my life. And I, the longer you sing them, the more you wonder whether you're really a Christian. It's, it's why we sing hymns that have more honesty to say, what I don't want to do, that's what I do. And what I want to do, that's not what I do. But thank Jesus that you lived and died in my place. And therefore, my standing with you is not based on what I want to do. Isn't that good news? Because what you want to do has no ability to make God very happy. You can't, I mean, some people say sometimes, well, God looks on the heart. Do you know that's the worst possible news? That's, a lot of people use that to comfort themselves. How sad. They try to comfort themselves by saying, God, God looks on the heart. That's the worst possible news if you know what's really in your heart. Here's the good news. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because God doesn't look at your heart and decide whether he likes you. He looks at Jesus who lived and died in the place of sinners. And if you're in Christ, he looks at you like he looks at Jesus. That's good news. 
So you have to get used to the fact that you feel like a complete contradiction even while you're righteous in God's sight because of what Jesus did. There's a guy that has passed away now but used to, um, used to say, you know, cheer up. This guy, Jack Miller, used to say all the time, cheer up, you're worse than you think you are. In other words, one of the slaveries that we live in is thinking that if we just tried a little harder or we just, you know, loved God a little more, that, that we'd really be sure of his love for us. That's one of the worst kind of bondages to ever live under. And the only way that that gets broken is if you see that sin is utterly sinful. And you see that I don't care how much better you get at loving. I don't care how much more you love God in your heart. You are never going to be able to earn his smile. And freedom comes when you realize that and you quit trying to get God to like you. The Christian life begins with rest and repentance. So that's the first thing. This contradiction is at work in the heart of true believers. And if you don't understand that, you'll go crazy. And second, fighting against sin is supposed to set up a chain reaction that drives you deeper into the heart of the gospel. What does this mean? Try to be holy this week. No, really try. Because what it'll do is it'll drive you to verse 24. Oh, wretched man. Oh, wretched woman that I am. See, you can comfort yourself and flatter yourself that the only reason that you're not really living a better life is you haven't really tried. G.K. Chesterton said once, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It's that it's been found difficult and therefore it's been left untried. So I say, try it with all your might. Because if you never get to verse 24, then the good news of chapter 8 that I'm going to talk about next week won't have any real power. You have to be, you have to get to the point of, oh, wretched man that I am, I can't do anything to make me better. I can't do anything to change my heart. Then you're ready for the good news to break in. There is therefore, because it's crazy that the next verse after this is a conclusion. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those two things are going on at the same time. A wretched man, who will deliver me? And there's no condemnation. But you'll never, you'll never love the good news. It'll never have power to change your heart unless you really try to be holy, fall flat on your face, and then have to run to Jesus and say, I have no ability to change my heart. Come, save me. Change me. That's the heart of the gospel. Let's pray.